So friends, we now are going to hear a message from, um, from Paul Jones. Thanks, Katie. Um, look at that, eh? Katie just being an amazing wife, helping her husband out. So cool. So Paul, you all know who Paul is. If you don't, he's, a, uh, he's the principal of Trinity College down the road, very close friends of ours. Um, so he is a professor. He is a doctor. So Dr. Paul, come up to the stage, brother, and give us the message. <laughs> Thanks, Bless mate. you, bro. Thanks. All right. I don't often get uh, introduced as a professor, but I'll take that. <laughs> I could get used to that. <laughs> hey, how did you go getting to church this afternoon? Traffic. Traffic. Yeah, some of you actually think I wanted an answer to that question. That's interesting in itself. <laughs> Just joking, Cal. Anytime, mate. Anytime you interrupt. If you came in a car, I wonder how you went changing those gears. If you, if you walked, I wonder how you went managing those steps out there. There's a lot of them. Or if you took a train, how, how was the go-kart experience? Did everything go smoothly? How did you go getting to church this afternoon? It's a weird question, I acknowledge that, and it's a weird question because none of us were thinking about those kinds of activities, except Cal. Uh, we just do them, we just got to church out of habit, right? And actually, so much of our lives, so much of our lives is lived by habit, and only by habit, a huge amount of our daily living. Apparently, our brains need habits, they need them just to function. If you think about something as simple as walking, which I'm doing now, I'm not thinking too much about it, just back and forth. If you had to think about every movement that you make with your hands, with your feet, with your legs, with your uh, core, your brain would be exhausted by the time you got to your front door. Not this front door, your front door. <laughs> it can be really useful for us to just let habits do their thing. Um, when I was back at uh, high school, I'm just going to move some things as I get ready to demonstrate how to walk. Um, I, I was in a military band, and if you've been in a military band, you know you've got to play an instrument and walk at the same time, and you've got to kind of march. And we were just working on marching, right? And there was this one guy, he couldn't get it. He couldn't march. And we said to him, look, all you do is you walk, right? You walk, you walk, but then you lift your arms just slightly higher than you might otherwise, and your legs as well. But you're just walking, right? But this guy, his approach was more like this one, right? Right arm, right leg, left leg, left arm. And we were, we were actually looking at him saying, how do you do that? That looks really difficult. And I tried, and it took me a while to master that. You try it later. But this guy was clearly overthinking something that he should have just left to habit. It can be really useful for us to just let habits do their thing. Because as I said, an enormous amount of what we do is habitual. And a lot of the time when we think we're making free choices, neurologists will tell us that actually we're not. We've formed habits and we're simply sticking to them because that's the easy way forward. And whether you like to hear this or not, most of the things you do every single day are managed by a small part of your brain. I didn't say you have a small brain. I said they're managed by a small part of your brain, leaving a larger part of your brain to do the real conscious decision-making. Now, this is true for walking, talking, driving, eating, but it's also true for the way you walk. 
the way you talk, the way you drive, and the way you eat. So let me just ask you to do something. Don't think too much about this, just do it. Cross your arms. Great. That was pretty quick. Now I'd like you to cross your arms the other way. Oh, some of you are in pain right now. <laughs> Has everyone managed? No one's given up. Good. Now that's the power of habit right there. And already, you now, now I have ask you again, uncross your arms and then cross them. Oh, now there's a choice. Now some of you are thinking, I've got options. I could put the right arm, I could put the left arm over like I normally do, or I could, I could go for the right. But you only have that choice because you're now aware that there is a choice. And habit has let go a little bit. We're going to come back to all this. It's not just uh, good things, though, that are habitual, is it? Walking, talking, driving, eating, crossing our arms, all of that saves us a lot of energy and time. But there are a lot of things that we do, and I think we're aware, you and I both know what I'm talking about. I don't know what your bad habits are, but you know what's come to mind as soon as I say bad habits. What are your bad habits? What are the things that you find hard to change. And I would invite you, bring those to the front of your mind right now. Don't say them out loud, please, but just bring them to the front of your mind. Those things that you're thinking about right now are hard to change because they've moved over to that small part of your brain that functions by instinct rather than conscious thought. And when action becomes instinctive or instinctual, we develop what we call blind spots. Do you know what your blind spots are? We know what some of our blind spots are because someone has taken the liberty of telling us. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> but seriously, seriously, thank you. Because you're the only person I know who with boldness and clarity and love tells me what my blind spots are. And when you have friends or people close to you like that, they become the voice of God, or a voice of God that the Spirit uses to speak into your life. And I hate to break this to you, but even as you sit there comfortably right now listening to me speak, there are blind spots at work in your thinking and in your being that you are blissfully unaware of. That's why they're called blind spots. And from a Christian perspective, you probably know that these things I'm referring to are sins, Right? They're sin. They're those things that are contrary to what God would want for us, and they're acts that are kind of rebellious or resistant against God's purposes for us. And what I'm driving at is that a lot of the sinful things we do aren't bad choices. They have become bad habits. And you may have heard the phrase habitual sin, which is sometimes used to describe those things that we think of as quite serious you know, drugs, uh, a sex addiction, domestic violence, alcoholism. But I, may I suggest that many of us in this room are caught in cycles of habitual sin. They might be the ones I just mentioned, but they might be other more subtle things. Manipulating others with our words. Telling half-truths, which, let's be honest, are also 
half lies in order to sustain a certain kind of reputation. Turning a blind eye to things that hurt other people because it suits us just fine to actually not know anything about it. Or holding grudges, punishing people with the silent treatment because we're not getting what we want. These are things that some of us have done again and again, which means they may well become things that we do. Sorry, this is uh, my antenna is not sticking today. Usually it does. I think it's a new one. Because we've done these things again and again, these things are probably going to quite easily become things that we continue to do again and again. So let's take a look at our text tonight because Paul says some interesting things about all of this. If we have a look at this first verse, when Paul talks about this habit of resisting God, he describes our minds as being futile. The Greek word there literally means empty, right? Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds, in the emptiness of their minds. Paul is warning us not to continue living as though we were empty-headed. Action without thought. Don't just do stuff again and again and again without thinking about it, Paul warns us. And he uses this phrase, futility of the mind. But then in the next verse, he gives us a whole range of phrases that we can reflect on. In verse 18, look at this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, separated from the flourishing life that is in God because of ignorance, hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, we could reflect on any of these phrases. Wouldn't make for the most uplifting sermon, but we could. And we could look at the way that they all speak about letting your actions just become habit, just letting yourself go. Darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hard of heart, losing all sensitivity. And this is what happens when we know that there's probably a better way out there, but we're not that invested in finding out what it is. We don't necessarily want to be enlightened. We don't want to overcome our ignorance because it's quite easy at the moment. It's nice. I'm, I'm happy. I'm comfortable. I'm complacent. We don't want to regain that sensitivity because sensitivity means pain, right? So we choose or allow the same old stuff and our hearts harden. I've experienced this. I'm sure you've experienced this in some way or another. The problem is one of the worst habits that we can develop, one of the worst habits is a habit of avoiding that voice. Now, I don't know where you stand in terms of faith and whether you think of that voice as the Holy Spirit or whether you think of that voice as Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder or your conscience. But if you ignore that voice, you will get better at ignoring that voice and you'll find that voice harder and harder to hear. We develop a habit, a habit of resisting change. And I know that you know people who've developed that habit. They can be young, they can be old, but they've developed a habit 
of knowing that they're perfectly happy the way they are and resisting change. And Paul's comment here, I just want to add, just as a side note, he talks about living as the Gentiles live. This isn't a racist comment from a Jew talking about non-Jews and saying they're all futile in their thinking. This is a way of talking about people who don't cultivate an awareness of God, cultivate an awareness of Jesus. So let's look at the next couple of verses. This is not the way that you learned Christ, for surely you've heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. The life to live with Jesus, this is, the, this is the difference that Paul is getting at. It's the life lived with Jesus that is a life of consciousness and awareness that there is an alternative. I know I, I demonstrated this by asking you to cross your arms, but it's the same idea that when the Spirit convicts you of sin and shows you something in your life, suddenly you're aware there's an alternative and suddenly you're faced with choice and decision. Now the Spirit can also empower you to do something different to what you've always done. And I strongly suggest that you get people around you to help you make new decisions if you're stuck in a cycle. But the life with Christ is the life of change. And Paul talks about the old life and the new life by talking about an old self and a new self. Have a look at the next couple of verses. You were taught to put away your former way of life. Put it away. Your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts. What an interesting phrase. Deluded by its lusts. He says that this old self of yours was deceived by its own desires. Right? We all have desires. There are things we want, of course. But Paul's saying, your desires, we sometimes think, yeah, I want this. That's probably good for me. I'll, I'll assume that and I'll pursue it. And he's saying those desires are often deluding you. They're deceiving you. They don't have your best interests in mind. Those desires from your old self simply don't want the best for you and aren't worth pursuing. And in the same breath, then, Paul goes on to talk about a new self. Look at verse 24. Clothe yourselves with the new self, a new you. Created according to the likeness of God, in the image of God, true righteousness and holiness. Wow. <laughs> this sounds great, Paul. Where do I sign up? I'd like to get rid of the old, and I'd like to put this new self on, and I'd like to just be a righteous, uh, holy person who makes the right choices all the time. Can I hear an amen? Yeah. We'd like that. We'd like that, Paul. Could you just show us how to change our habits, break the cycles? Uh, what can I do to start choosing differently? How can I develop godly habits? Well, right now, I just want to pray. It's not the introduction. Don't worry. That's not a sense of how long I'm going to speak for. I'm probably right about in the middle. But can we just stop and pray for a second and ask that God speak to each of us in a unique and personal way. Just join me in prayer for a sec. Lord, I pray that you'd move tonight. I pray that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, you've already been moving here tonight. I have felt and known your presence here. I just pray you'd help us to see the light of Christ within, but also to see our sin within for what it is, destructive to ourselves. 
Help us to see new things, certain things about our, ourselves tonight that will help us become the people you created us to be. We want our choices and our habits to bring you honor and a smile. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You know, one of the most wonderful things about being a Christian, one of the most wonderful, is the possibility, no, the probability, dare I say the certainty, that you will be transformed. You will be changed. How good is that? It's, it's a certainty, and one of the marks of evangelical Christian faith is the conviction that Christians have what's called a conversion experience. That is, when you encounter Jesus, when you meet Jesus, you are changed. I'm not a huge fan of the idea that we have a single conversion experience, though. Because discipleship is a lifelong commitment to conversion experiences. Discipleship is a lifelong commitment to, to conversion Discipleship is a lifelong commitment to discipleship is a lifelong commitment to that's kind of true. I was just getting tongue tied. But yeah, it's conversion experiences, right? Over and over again. I was saying to my preaching class as we finished this last semester that I hope that every time I preach, every year that I preach, there is an improvement in the way that I'm preaching, that I haven't settled for this is the way I do it. I put in four hours or six hours or eight hours and this is what comes out the other end and that's what I preach. But that I'm thinking about these things. And the same applies, I think, to our Christian life. It's a commitment to conversion experiences. And this is what gives us hope as Christians because the past is not merely repeated in the present and then on and on and on into the future. And who I've become at the age of 46, is not the end of my story, <laughs> thank God. Seriously. As long as I'm alive, there is the possibility, the probability, the certainty of change. Because as a disciple of Jesus, I have made a lifelong commitment to conversion experiences. But what does this look like? That's a key question, isn't it? Does this require me? What do I do about this? Do I just... I need to sit down on my living room floor when no one's around and just think about the sin in my life and what am I getting wrong at the moment and focus on that and find ways to change those behaviors and fight those sins and beat them down. Is that the way forward? Hmm, I've tried that. No. That kind of moralistic thinking, it basically puts way too much focus on the sin. It puts all this emphasis on the sinful behavior and that becomes the focus. And then we measure our discipleship, our walk with Jesus, by how we're doing with this particular sin. But can I just say that fixing your eyes on sin is not the heart of Christian faith. Fixing your eyes on sin is not the heart of Christian faith. Christian faith is not moralism. Christianity is a change of identity. What do you guys think of that? Christianity is a change of identity. Yes, three of you love that. So three of us will be transformed this evening. So how? How do we put on this new self that sounds so great that Paul's talking about? Well, don't look at me. I don't have the answers. Look to the text. 
The reason Christians gather around the Bible on Sundays, by the way, the answers are in here, in this iPad. No, in the Bible. Let's look at verse 23. Paul says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds, which is very similar to something that he says in Romans. The Ephesians and the Romans, these Christians who are trying to be transformed. In Romans 12, he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And Paul is saying, you can't just force yourself to change. You can't just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and expect that you're going to be a different person tomorrow morning. You can't make yourself do better. Sound familiar? Some of you have tried this, I know. I have. But the, and the thing is, this is a theological claim and statement, but it's backed by research-based evidence too. A lot of research has been done on changing habits and identifying habits and forcing change. And the truth is, when people try to force change on a particular behavior without anything else, that behavior normally comes back with a roaring appetite. And things tend to get worse. They take a step backwards rather than forwards. And no, that's not what Paul's suggesting here. What does he say? The renewing of your minds. So Paul is suggesting that the way we think, the way we understand ourselves has to change and that will lead to a change in action. Identity determines activity. But all this sounds very well too. Let me give you a couple of examples. I want to try and be practical even though we're talking about changing the way you think. One of the reasons that we can put away that former self is because that former way of life is dead and dying. Okay? There is no future for it. It has no future. It's a way of life that tricks you into desires that are life-diminishing. These are things that the Bible teaches us to believe because they will change our lives. That former way of life has desires and compels you to follow those, pursue those desires, but they will diminish your life. They will not enable you to flourish. That way of life has no future, so with this renewed understanding, you can move on from it. There is, of course, an element of willpower and making decisions, of community around you, of prayer being filled with the Spirit and asking God to fill you with the Spirit. But there is a transformed understanding of who you are and why you do what you do. And this new way of life, by contrast, this new self, is life-giving. It's actually harder, but it will give you life. You will flourish. You will become a different person. This self has a future, an eternal future. That self, not so much. So in every little decision, in every little decision, you can build up and develop these new habits. Be godly. Now what I've just said might sound a little bit dense and a bit theological, and perhaps it is. But that's what Paul says when he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. To borrow uh, a slogan from Apple, Paul's saying, think different. Sorry, all of you Apple haters out there. 
Because if you can start to think in this way, that old, sin, that old sinful habits are preserving a way of life that is literally killing you, suddenly your motivation will be increased to put off the old and clothe yourself with the new. Let me give you one more example of how we change our thinking and how our thinking precedes our actions. Um, when I was oh, in my early 20s, I used to live at a Bible college and I would come home on the weekends and I'd share a room with my little brother Pete. Not so little anymore. Sorry, Pete, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> but Pete and I, we used to chat. We were, I was, yeah, I was young. He was in his teenage years and he would ask me about some of the things I was learning. These theological things, but especially, especially how they related to real life. And of course, teenagers are facing all kinds of temptations and identity questions. And so sometimes he would ask a question as simple as this. How do you avoid sin, Paul? How do you avoid sin? It's a good question, right? And I'd lie there on my bed thinking, Lord, help me. How do we avoid sin? But I remember telling him in that, that in the moment of decision, where you feel faced with a temptation, we need to remind ourselves of the truth. This is not who I am anymore. I'm literally not this person who takes that course of action, who goes down that path. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I think it is. <laughs> it's not in the thing, but it says... If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Behold, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is a reality. If I believe in Jesus, that Jesus' death was for my sin, I am a new person. But what, where this comes to the crux is I've got to live in the light of that. I can't just say, oh, that's a nice theological truth. Now, where were we? It's... It's a truth that unless you put it into practice and the rubber hits the road in the moment of decision, I mean, I think this is why it's called the obedience of faith. It's the obedience that comes from believing the truths that Jesus has taught us, that Paul has taught us, that we read in Scripture. And it's the obedience that comes from actually trusting in the moment that that is the truth. This is not who you are anymore. That's who you are. Behave accordingly. And that's powerful stuff. And it's true. And Pete would say to me, eh, isn't that just a mind game, Paul? <laughs> Sounds like you're just trying to convince yourself that you're someone else. But it's not a mind game. It's the gospel truth. It's the good news. It's being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not possible without Jesus, I don't believe. Can we be good without God? It's an age-old question. Sure, we can be good, we can be maybe better, but this kind of deep transformation that requires the Spirit to say, I'm putting my finger on that this week, and I will love you through it. I'm here for you. I care for you. And I'll do this in a way that you'll be able to manage. I'm not going to chuck it all on you at once, hold up a mirror to you so that you can just be absolutely horrified with who you really are. I mean, we're stained with sin, people. Stained with it. The decisions we make and we think that they're wonderful and we're such great people, they're the worst sometimes because the motive under, underneath them is very questionable. But this is where the gospel has real 
transformative power. When we're in these moments, uh, sometimes we think, do I choose A or do I choose B? What's the Christian thing to do? What's the right thing to do? That's the wrong question. Not what's the right thing to do. The question to ask yourself is simply, who am I? Who am I? And not just who am I, who am I when no one's looking? Identity determines activity. And that's why Paul draws a straight line in this text between our thinking and our doing. Did you notice that? Here's the thinking. We already read that through. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And here's the doing that follows. And it begins, yeah, it's small. Sorry. It begins with, so then, or, or therefore, depending what translation you're using. And when you see the word therefore, I've said this before, you have to ask what it's there for. It always follows from the previous bit of Paul's argument. If he says, so then, look back, so what? Oh, yeah, right, so the thinking changes, and now look what he's talking about. Let's get that with a slightly bigger text so that we can have a look. We might look at this and think, ah, Paul, you and your rules, mate. This is a little bit old school. It's a bit Old Testament. Remember all those laws? Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Come on. Paul, can't we move on from the Old Covenant to the New? But one of the things that strikes us about the Old Testament, so many rules and laws about this and that, about eating, what you can and can't eat, what kinds of things. Don't eat rock badges. I know I mentioned that a couple of months ago. I hope that's still in your thinking. Don't cut the corners of your beard. I did that just this week. Whoops. <laughs> but your clothing. You know, don't, don't wear something that's made of two different materials. What, what, what's going on here? The reason there are so many rules, all these rules, this overkill in the Old Testament, is that God is brought into everything. When you're sowing seed, don't mix it. So some of that over there, and then separate that from the other crops. Now, it may not matter that much in the end, but what's happening here is that a God consciousness is being brought into the mind of the Israelites in every part of their lives. They sit down to eat. They're thinking about God. They're putting their clothes on. They're thinking about God. They're out on the farm. They're thinking about God. And as controversial as it may sound, I'd even go so far as to say that some of the content of those laws doesn't actually matter so much, but it brings God into our thinking. The more God-conscious that we are, the greater the potential for bad habits to be broken, for good habits to be strengthened. And the more these laws invade our thinking, these kinds of laws the greater the chance for our habitual sins to be interrupted by an awareness that the Holy Spirit loves us, is for us, and is present. And that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. He brings personal conviction of sin. More than anything, he says to us, that's not who you are anymore. This is who you are. How now shall we live? Not sure if you've noticed, but in those last few verses, Paul suggests some really practical things about forming new habits. He's got putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we're members of one another. That's about speech. Speak in a way that brings 
wholeness to the body of Christ. Lies divide, don't they? They don't just divide a community, they divide you. We talk about half-truths and half-lies and white lies. Don't fragment yourself by thinking it's okay to just divide truth and falseness within ourselves. That can't be. But also within the body here, we're members of one another. We're members of one body. And in the very next chapter, Paul will talk all about that. We'll hear about that in the coming weeks. That we are Christ's body. Arms, eyes, nose, hairs, armpits. The works, right? From top to bottom, we make up this body and Christ is the head. And when the body behaves in a way that people outside the church look and say, wow, what's going on in that community? And they're drawn to the head, to Jesus. One body is an image that Paul really likes and he uses it a lot. We're all working together with our gifts towards the same end. And falsehood will divide and destroy us. So be careful in what you say. But then in verse 26, he says, be angry. Did you notice that? Be angry. That's okay. There are times when you can be angry. It's not wrong in itself to feel any emotion. It's what you do with it. It's how you follow up with your actions. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't hold on to anger. Don't hold on to it because it will grow and it will fester. And as Paul says, it'll make room for the devil. So be careful with what you feel. And then thirdly here, verse 27 may sound a bit random. Thieves should stop, must give up stealing. Should stop stealing. The point is quite clear. Stealing is something you do with your hands, right? And Paul says, let a thief work honestly with his or her own hands. The same hands that used to steal, put them to good use. The principle is quite easy. It's just, if you were doing that with your hands, do something else with your hands that is good and replace that bad habit with a good one. Be careful with what you do. But what Paul's getting at in all of this, whether with your words, your emotions, or your hands, in order to break old habits and make new habits, you have to consciously replace one thing with another and teach your hands, teach your minds, teach your mouth, as it says in the next verse, to do something constructive. And why is all this so important? It all sounds like I'm just saying, hey, guys, be better people. But why? Because you are marked for redemption. That's back to the same thing. This is who you are. This is who you've been made to be. We're back to that question of identity again. You've been marked for redemption. And grieving the Holy Spirit that it mentions here, I think that's a reference to Isaiah 63 in the Old Testament where it says that Israel rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So again, it's just staying in that old way of life. It grieves the Spirit because the, the Spirit's trying to say something to you, trying to speak, trying to be heard. And the wonderful thing is that I have to add in here, there have been years of my life that I have crusted over in certain ways and not listened. And the Spirit doesn't give up. God is relentless. God's love for you is unimaginable. 
And it doesn't matter if you feel all crusted over and you can't hear a damn thing right now. God will keep coming at you and keep speaking to you and the Spirit will keep knocking until you decide it's time. I've got to put away that old self that is killing me and do something new. Be who you really are. As Paul put it back at the start of the chapter, I beg you, I beg you to live up to the calling you've received. Who are you called to become? That's what we're thinking about this series. I beg you to live up to the calling that you've received. Let me pray. Ah, Jesus, we are so indebted to you. You created us packed full of potential. And then you call us and you summon us to an even greater way. And then you fill us with your spirit, your own breath. And then you give us gifts so that we can bless one another in this community and reach out to the world beyond. And you give us purpose and a sense of calling in our lives. We owe everything to you. I pray that people tonight with the things that you've said, the things you've put in our hearts and minds, I pray that people will have the courage to come forward and to receive prayer. I know Katie and and myself will be over there praying for people. And I hope that in this community, people will respond to your call. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your relentless pursuit of us. Thank you, Jesus, for making it all possible. Amen.